Here is going to be speaking to us on the subject of miracles. Our scripture passage is from Daniel chapter 3. You can follow along if you want on the back of your program. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, Certainly, your majesty. He said, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come out here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. As I was getting ready to um, come to church this morning, hold on. I can't, I'm not like Ryan, I haven't gotten to the point where I can do this without notes. Um, as I was getting ready this morning, it hit me, shoot, I don't have a joke. Any speaker worth anything knows that you've got to start off with a joke. But I don't have a joke this morning. Um, I am sort of naturally a cut-up, so I'm hoping that that will just sort of organically infuse itself throughout um, the sermon this morning. And I'm counting on Grant, our in-house stand-up comic, that if I'm going down in flames, man, you got to come bail me out, okay? <laughs> Lighten it up a little. Um, in, uh, no, let's see, yeah, in November, Thanksgiving, we go to Jamaica with some friends of ours, and we were there this past Thanksgiving, and these people have been going for years and years, a couple times a year, so they know all the people at the place we stay and consider them family. They're literally considered family to them. So the first morning we were there, they went to church. My friend, who is this highly intellectual New York filmmaker kind of person, and to my knowledge, not particularly spiritual or religious, decides she's going to go to church with this woman that works at the place where we were staying. So she took her father, her 80-year-old father, who's also, you know, writer, intellect, whatever, and they go to this church out in the boonies in Jamaica. And I really couldn't wait to see their response to that and how that went. So they came back, and she was just, my friend Ruth was, not this Ruth, a different Ruth, um, was just effusive with how amazing the service was. And so I was having her tell me all about it. What songs did they sing? What was the message about? And she said there wasn't a preacher, a message per se, but everybody was just giving testimony, and they were all fired up. She said, Kara, they were talking about miracles. Nobody talks about that stuff anymore. And I was so um, inspired that this, my friend, this intellectual sort of typical cynical New Yorker was touched by all of these people giving testimony of miracles and that she wasn't laughing at it or delving into something about how Christians are crazy, which often somehow I find myself in that conversation. Um, so I, I don't know about you guys. 
2010 pretty much kicked my butt. It was a great year. Some, so many blessings, so many precious moments, but truly some tough stuff to, to deal with. I am exhausted at the end of 2010. So the thought of miracles, the, the concept has me, had me very interested. And so following Ruth's excitement and just the beating that I took over the last year, I decided miracles would be a good thing to look into for 2011. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Um, I definitely need something supernatural to get me up off my backside after, after 2010. Um, we, Dan and I have um, some friends that play in a band called Betty. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of them, but so we went to their holiday concert um, in December, which I thought was funny. They did a holiday concert at all. If you knew the band, you would know why I mean that. But um, so the one of the lead singers got up and did this whole riff and rant about as a lead into one of their songs, which is called "Miracles Happen." She did a lead into this song where she riffed and ranted about how people talk about miracles so flippantly. Oh, it's a miracle that I got a cab in the rain, or it's a miracle that, you know, that my kid got a B in Spanish, or whatever it is. You know, we talk about that stuff so flippantly, and she was going on and on about it, and I was thinking, wow, I had no idea that these people in this band were spiritual at all. And then it turns out that that didn't last long, because then I actually heard the song. <laughs> Here's the lyrics to... Um, Miracles happen. Hold on, I need these. It says, I saw baby Jesus in the parking lot. He saved a space just for me. He said it had to be a miracle that only I could see. I saw the Holy Spirit at the ATM. He cashed a check just for me. He started dancing on the head of, the p- head of a pen. That really made me want to believe. I saw the Virgin Mary at Jenny Craig. She said I lost some weight. She gave me her own special recipe for a fat-free fruitcake. Believe, believe. Yes, I believe. So if you're feeling blue for these holidays, please wait patiently. You might see your very own miracle and end up just like me. Wow. (laughs) So first, before you get distracted by wondering why one of your pastors hangs out with blasphemous rock singers, that's a discussion for another day. But um, truly, this song puts right out in the open a lot of the questions that I have always had, and I'm going to guess that you've had, about miracles. Like, what is a miracle, really? What classifies as a miracle? Um, Who can do these miracles? Is God the only one who can perform a miracle? And if it is God, when and why does he decide to do one of these miracles? Um, Do do miracles make it more or less difficult to believe that there actually is a God? Do I have to believe in these miracles to believe there's a God? And then finally, and probably most important, how do I get one of these things for myself? How do I get a miracle? So um, before we delve into trying to explore for answers to some of those questions, let's just pray together quickly. Dear God, you know my heart. You know every doubt in there, you know, all my weaknesses, you know, the week that I had this week, Lord, you know, the ensuing exhaustion um, from that. 
And so um, I just pray, Lord, that we, we're, we bring to you that we want you to speak to us today clearly. And so if I'm going to be the messenger for that, we do need a miracle. We need you to intervene, Lord, and to fill the vast gap of my inadequacy so that your words are heard exactly how you intend them to be heard by the very people that you brought here um, today. And if you do choose um, to do that, Lord, to intervene and to speak to these people, Lord, for that, we give you all the glory. Amen. The next thing my note says, breathe, really heavy, <laughs> big letters across the bottom of the page. So let's talk about what a miracle is exactly. Um, Wikipedia, which now has replaced Webster's Britannica or any previously revered source of fact, describes a miracle as an unexpected event attributed to divine intervention. So it's an event that's, that occurs above the course of nature and beyond its productive powers as we understand them. So in essence, it's the supernatural. Um, it comes from the Latin word miraculum, and the, word, the verb there is mirari. I didn't take Latin. I also got that from Wikipedia. Um, and mirari means to wonder. So miracles are something that are big and make us wonder. It's, they inspire wonder. So is God the only one that can perform a miracle? Scripture tells us that spiritual beings, both good and bad, um, exist, they do exist, and they possess powers greater than man possesses. So scripture actually backs up the concept that there are beings out there other than God, other than man, that have um, powers that to do things that, uh, that we'll explore in a minute. So often in scripture, God performed miracles through Angels. So that would be one example of not God, not man, but um, a being that God used to perform a miracle through. So examples of that, um, in Second Samuel, there was an angel all ready to go destroy Jerusalem all by himself. That would have been a miraculous event. God recalled him, having a change, informed him of a change of plans, but that angel was all ready to do that miracle all by himself. Um, in the New Testament, Peter in Acts is freed from prison by an angel. So we see often God using angels to perform miracles or giving angels the ability to do these miracles. He also, also in the New Testament, we see frequently men performing miracles. So um, in Exodus, God gives Aaron and Moses lots of opportunities to perform miracles. He used them to um, secure the Israelites' freedom from Egypt and deliverance to um, the Promised Land. In uh, the New Testament, the apostles were always performing miracles. They used miracles to cure the lame, heal the sick, drive out demons, raise the dead. So they were doing some pretty impressive stuff, and those are things that happened through men. Um, in Mark, Jesus tells us that um, the gift of miracles should live on in the church. So that suggests that miracles aren't just something that happened in the Bible thousands of years ago, but that they could continue today um, to be performed by those other than God. So technically, we could perform, not we necessarily, that'd be cool, but um, men could technically perform miracles. In the Catholic Church, during the canonization pro uh, process, when they're 
making someone a saint, one of the criterion is that that person has to have performed miracles during their lifetime. So miracles, even modern day, are there and acknowledged. So um, that is possible. I've had some conversations with some of you in this room today about miraculous things that you have seen and observed yourself. So um, absolutely there is plenty of evidence that miracles aren't just a thing that happens in the Bible, but that they can happen today and that they don't um, solely occur through God. They can occur through angels, men, And we also even saw some evidence in the Bible or some instances where inanimate objects were used in miracles. So a guy named um, Naaman was cured of leprosy by the waters of the Jordan River. It's a river. Um, There are other things like the Temple of Jerusalem and the Ark of the Covenant that we hear the miraculous powers that these objects have. So God can use all kinds of things for miracles. Um, Noting, though, that all these types of miracles through angels, men, inanimate objects, all those miracles point to the glory of God. They, they, do, they are for the, um, the benefit of man and the glory of God. So even though God's not the one necessarily on the ground performing the miracle, all of the glory is attributed to him in those instances. And the reason I make that distinction is because Scripture also acknowledges evil spirits. And it tells us um, that um, evil spirits have powers, although they are limited and conditional. So, for instance, um, if any of you ever, if you have kids and you saw the movie The Prince of Egypt, it's about Moses and his life story. And and one really dramatic, cool scene, if there can be such a thing in an animated film, and I say that there can be, um, there's basically a showdown between Moses and the magicians in Pharaoh's palace. The Egyptian magicians, they were basically battling it out for who could do the best miracles. They were trying to prove to Pharaoh, right as he's kind of starting to feel a soft spot for Moses to listen to this, his son about um, the plight of the Egyptians, yeah, I mean the plight of the Israelites, um, the Egyptian magicians were doing all kinds of crazy big magic. Um, so that actually happens. Um, in the New Testament, evil spirits actually acknowledged Jesus. So they're, they're in the game together. There's evil spirits doing big stuff. Jesus is doing big stuff. They actually, the evil spirits called Jesus by name and acknowledged him as somebody who was more powerful than they. Um, there have been, and were promised in scripture that there will be, continue to be in the future, false prophets. So people who, um, have these powers, um, that, and they use them to deceive. So deceive even those who are already followers of Christ. So um, we're the, in Revelation, John talks about the apocalypse, which is the, what we think is maybe a description of what the end of the world is going to be like. And he talks about um, the evil beast and his terrifying powers that he uses to instill fear in people so that he can have some sort of reign on the earth. So evil spirits, false prophets, they're out there and, 
and have powers that seem more and that are more powerful than the powers of man, but they're limited and they're conditional. They have these skills that are relative to our abilities, really powerful and scary, but they lack meaning and they lack purpose. Something that you'll notice if you look at all of the miracles that God performs or that he performs through men, angels, objects, whatever, um, they have some characteristics. They don't um, cause, they don't produce disorder. They don't produce discord. They don't have elements that are wicked, um, unmeaning, useless, or even ridiculous in some cases. So um, Betty's description of miracles, Jesus in the parking lot, Jesus at the ATM, while highly entertaining, don't really meet this criteria of God's kind of miracles. In, in a word, God's miracles are dignified. If you could um, give me that word, you know, ability to use that word, they're dignified. They serve a purpose. Um, and so let's just look at some of the purposes. Um, in a minute, we're going to look at some of the purposes God's miracles serve. So when you look at David Blaine and Chris Angel, are those guys performing miracles? Do they have real powers? I don't know. They're pretty entertaining. Um, but the stuff that that they do, that we that magicians do, um, if it's not just outright, you know, admitted trickery on their part, it it. And it may not necessarily be evil in origin. It doesn't meet this criteria of a divine miracle. It doesn't glorify God, and it's not for the benefit of man. So that's what we're going to use today as our sort of um, litmus test for a miracle that's from God. So if miracles are from God, when and why does he decide to do them? When, when does he perform them, and why? So there's those two main reasons that I just mentioned are the times that we can find God doing miracles. It's either for the glory of God to prove his glory or for the and or for the good of man. So here are some instances when miracles um, are directly to assert the glory of God. Um, John opens his gospel in the New Testament by saying, we've seen his glory. There's a verse on the back of your program today quoting um, John. The, he was one of the lucky people that actually got to see firsthand Jesus performing miracles. And so he wrote down in Testament for people for generations, thousands of years later to know we've seen his glory. Um, God uses miracles throughout scripture to establish his identity. So when Moses is panicking about his ability to convince the Israelites that he is in fact supposed to lead them out of Egypt and they're supposed to trust him and follow him and do all these crazy things that he's going to ask them to do in order to get out of Egypt, um, he's panicking to God. and, And God says, just tell them I am who I am. And then he equips Moses with all these crazy, miraculous things that he's able to do in order to convince the Israelites and the Egyptians that he was sent from God. He's on a mission from God. So God uses miracles to glorify. Um, He's glorified when he used miracles to prove his identity. He also uses miracles to demonstrate his power over nature. So um, there's... The story in the New Testament about um, 
when the apostles, which are Jesus' posse, basically his homies, close friends, on a boat, and they're in the middle of a terrible thunderstorm, and the the tempest is raging, we're told, and the apostles were terrified, and they begged Jesus to calm the storm, and he does. He just literally spoke the waters to calm, and they did. So, um, so Jesus often used, and God uses miracles to demonstrate his power over nature, and that's key for something we're going to talk about in a minute. Jesus also used his works to prove that he was sent by God and that he is, in fact, the Son of God. So constantly throughout the New Testament, you hear Jesus, um, when he's speaking to people, either to um, leaders, the, the Jewish leaders, or even to crowds, saying, don't you see the parallels between prophecy, what was told to you thousands of years ago, that these words that you've been studying, these texts that you've been studying, this is what's happening. It's coming true. My, I am fulfilling those prophecies. So not only are now the prophecies miracle because they're coming true, but it is a miracle because I am here. My life, my life is real and you're witnessing it. So he used his works to show people that he was, in fact, sent from God, that he was, in fact, the Son of God. And he also used miracles to accomplish his mission on earth, which was to spread this news, to spread this truth about who he was and that God had sent him. Um, so he, the Bible tells us all these works that he did, and people would see the, him and follow him by the thousands. People would follow him in such numbers after they saw his works that he couldn't even gain access to certain cities because there were so many people following him, they couldn't even get into the cities. So um, a lot of you know the story of the 5,000 people that saw his works and followed him. He couldn't even get into town, so they had a camp outside of town, and Jesus tells the apostles to sort of break everybody up and send them down, and that's where this, and they're like, we got, we got to feed all these people. They followed us. Now we can't get into town. There's no McDonald's out here. We got to feed these people, and so he goes and gets a kid that has a couple loaves, some bread, some fish in his picnic basket, and feeds the whole crowd with that, with that food, um, so he uses the miracles to spread the word about his mission and to get to followers um, following him, which in essence is the beginning of the church. And because of these works, his reputation spread across the entire Middle East. There weren't newspapers back then. There wasn't CNN or Fox News. Um, there was just word of mouth. And so for something to spread across the entire Middle East about this guy who's doing these miraculous things, it was important. And all these things, again, point to the glory of God. Whoops. Upside down piece of paper. Um, sorry, forgive me. The other, the other reason that God does miracles is for the good of men. So sometimes God performs miracles to make a way for us, to help guide us. Um, I've mentioned the Israelites a couple of times in Moses. Holy smokes. That I can't find anywhere else in Scripture a group of people who were the beneficiaries or the witnesses of so many flipping miracles. It was something new every single day. So God, first of all, recruits Moses to lead the, the Israelites out of Egypt by appearing to him in a 
flaming, burning bush that's on fire. So there's miracle number one for the Israelites. And then after Moses is convinced, um, again, he and Aaron are a little iffy. They're a little nervous. What if people don't follow us? What if the Egyptians give us a hard time? And so God gives them some miraculous abilities um, to to help get... uh, help them feel powerful and to demonstrate that they are from God. So he gives them a staff that they can throw down on the ground and it turns into a serpent. He has a cloak. Moses has a cloak and he sticks his hand in, pulls it out. It has leprosy. He sticks his hand back in the cloak, pulls it out. It's healed. So God gives them all kinds of abilities to perform miracles like that, just to get the people to follow him. And then to convince Pharaoh to let the people go, he then sends the plagues, which we've all heard about, these horrible plagues that God sends on the Egyptian people to weaken Pharaoh. And and Moses then can go in and say, let my people go. And then after all that, to actually make their escape, when God's made a way for the escape, he parts the Red Sea, parts the waters of the Red Sea so the the Israelites can actually physically leave Egypt. And then puts the waters back together and drowns the pursuing Egyptian army. And that was just the beginning. That was just the beginning of their plight, their 40 years of miracles that would follow. So every day God provided for the Israelites by sending manna from heaven, bread falling down out of the sky. And I don't mean like, oh, somebody found a little leftover, you know, piece of bread from somebody's picnic. We're talking raining um, bread. Um, he gives them water that gushes from stones when they're thirsty. He even has a ball of fire in the sky to show them the way. So these are lots of miracles. And can I just note that even given all of that, sometimes they had a hard time getting their act together and really believing that this was God and that he was going to deliver for them. That's why it took them 40 years. But those are just some of the things that God did for the Israelites during their journey to the promised land. Sometimes God uses miracles to get our attention or to correct our path. And I feel like certainly in my life, I've had a lot of things happen that I, afterwards I realized where God just yanking the rug out from under me um, because that's what I needed. And I wasn't going to respond to anything less um, dramatic than than what God affected. So there's this crazy character in the Old Testament called Balaam, who I actually did not know about growing up. And I'm, uh, I feel like I missed out on years of knowing about Balaam. But he was kind of this crazy character um, that was kind of a seer, and he could put curses on people and do stuff like that. So when the Israelites are on their journey, they're outside of this place called Moab. And the guy that rules Moab, of course, in true biblical forms, name is Balak, which is really similar to Balaam, which makes the story really hard to remember and follow because their names sound the same. But anyway, so Balak sends for Balaam and says, you got to put a curse on these people. They're all hanging around on the outskirts of town and they're making me really nervous. And they say that they're God's people and I'm not comfortable with this whole thing. So I need you to put a curse on them. And Balaam says, no, I can't, no can do. God didn't tell me to do that. So Balak keeps sending his people back to, to bring Balaam to him and offering him castles of gold and silver and all the stuff. And so finally, Balaam goes with um, Balak's people and he saddles up on his donkey and starts heading into town, into Moab, to talk to Balak. 
and the donkey won't go. The donkey's backing up. He's going to the side, and he won't go forward. And Balaam's just, like, beating the crud out of this donkey, like, go, you f- donkey, just, like, go. Flipping is what I was going to say. Go, donkey. And the donkey will not go. And so um, <laughs> what he doesn't realize is there's an angel in the path. And the donkey sees the angel and is freaking out, saying, I am not going down that path. There is an angel standing there telling me to back up. So I'm not going down that path, and you can beat me all day long if you want. That's what he's thinking. What he actually says, and the donkey actually says to Balaam, why are you doing this to me? So we're talking about a talking donkey. That's probably why nobody ever told me this story when I was growing up, because there's no way I would have believed it. But um, so the donkey's talking to Balaam, why are you doing this to me? Why are you beating me? Have I ever, I've always had your back. Have I ever done this to you before? Have I ever not done what you told me? And Balaam says, hmm, no. And, and all of a sudden the Bible says, God opens Balaam's eyes and he sees the angel in the path and falls down on his knees and apologizes to the angel and the donkey. And and then it was, everything was good. But so God used that angel to correct Balaam's path because he was not pleasing God in the path that he was going. So he literally changed Balaam's path using a miraculous angel and donkey, by the way. And so I wouldn't have believed the story about the talking donkey when I was a kid. I would have said something like, well, he was hallucinating or he had a bad dream. But even that is a miracle, right? It's Even if all of that, even if there wasn't a talking donkey, which I believe there was a talking donkey, because I think God has that kind of sense of humor, it doesn't matter one way or the other because Balaam's path was changed. God caused that path to change however he did it. Another reason that God um, does miracles is through works of mercy. So a great example of that is when Jesus' dear friend Lazarus Lazarus dies while he's out of town and he's too far away can't get there in time to save Lazarus when he's ill and he comes and he raises Lazarus from the dead and that is a it's an incredibly touching story if you've ever read that and that's a great example of um, Jesus performing works of mercy Um, so all these things all these types of miracles that Jesus performs um, as you as we look at them are either for his glory or for the good of man. The last reason that I noticed as I did my research that God um, performs miracles for people is as a reward for faith. So we heard this story earlier. Ryan read the story about King Nebuchadnezzar, or Nebuchadnezzar, as my kids call him, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Abednego, as my kids call him. These are guys who are just praising God and singing about him constantly. So Neb, Neb, I almost called him Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar goes and builds this golden God and says, okay, from now on, if you hear music or singing or whatever, you got to bow down to this golden God that I've created. And so everybody's doing it. They're bowing down to the golden God. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, sorry, king, no, can't do. We only sing for our God. And so eventually Nebuchadnezzar gets word of this and calls them on the carpet and says, you got to bow down to this golden God. And they say, well, here's what they say. We do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. 
if we're thrown into the blazing furnace, which is the punishment he's told he's going to give them if they don't do it, if we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. That's bold. Those are bold words from three really young guys to a pharaoh who will, in fact, throw them and does throw them in a fiery furnace that's so blazing hot that the three guards, three of the guards that were sent to throw them in the furnace became overwhelmed themselves and fell in and perished in the furnace. So the king, as he's watching, uh, watching the punishment be executed, looks in and sees not just three guys in the furnace, but he sees four and says, wait a minute, didn't we throw three guys in the furnace? And as people say, yeah, we threw all three of them in there. And he says, I see four. And one of them looks like the son of a God. And so it wasn't just the son of a God. That re- we know that that was a deity, that it was a divine presence sent by God um, to be in that furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as they continued to sing while the fires burned around them. And then Nebuchadnezzar comes to the edge of the pit, calls them out, says, come out of there, guys. And they come out, and they're not only unscathed, there's a trace of fire on them. They don't smell like it. Their their hair is not singed. Their clothes aren't burned. They are completely and utterly unscathed. And Nebuchadnezzar, on the spot, converts and says, wow, these people worship the true God. I'm going to worship their God. And in fact, so are all you people. So forget the golden God. Now you're all going to bow to the, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then he gets a little over-enthusiastic and says, and by the way, if you don't bow down to him, we're going to chop you up into pieces and burn your house down. So maybe rein that in a little bit. I like his enthusiasm. Um, <laughs> in a more modern context, Hasidic communities um, are always talking about miracles that are happening in their community every day. Barren women um, give birth. uh, Wayward children come back into the fold. Cancer tumors shrink. All these kinds of things are because of their faith. They expect it. They know that it's going to happen. They believe that it's going to happen. So miracles are also a reward of faith. All right, so let's keep going. So miracles are for the glory of God and or the good of man. So there's our next question, which is, do miracles make it more or less difficult to believe in God? They're, they're definitely um, a wonder, as the Latin word tells us, we have to wonder about miracles. So like my friend Ruth pointed out, miracles really seem like a thing of the past. Uh, mysticism, magic, things like that were commonly witnessed and accepted thousands of years ago, but not so much today. Um, American Revolutionary War patriot Ethan Allen said this, In those parts of the world where learning and science have prevailed, miracles have ceased. But in those parts of it, as are barbarous and ignorant, miracles are still in vogue. Ouch, that's harsh. Um, But let's face it, he's kind of saying something that has certainly passed through my mind before and probably... Um, the minds of a lot of people as they evaluate miracles. Volumes of texts have been dedicated to debating, disproving, refuting, and in some cases ultimately embracing the validity of miracles and ultimately their association with God and whether he exists. 
big-time philosophers, Aristotle, David Hume, James Keller, C.S. Lewis, and a whole bunch of lesser-known but but, um, certainly respected and intelligent thinkers have established theories on the subject. And I love, there's an author named Christopher Hitchens. He's a really famous atheist, and he wrote a book a few years ago called God is Not Great. Somebody in an interview asked him um, to give his favorite Bible stories. What's your favorite Bible story? And he said, uh, well, the first miracle where Jesus changes water into wine. He said, you can't argue with that. So I love that. Many, many, most of the arguments are a big chunk of the arguments against miracles and against their existence, validity, possibility are based on something called naturalism, which simply means they occur outside of nature. And if God, in fact, is the creator of nature, he either would not or could not violate the laws of his own creation. So that's naturalism, and that's generally where people jump on the the anti-miracle, anti-God bandwagon. So the, the fatal flaw in that that I see is it assumes we know, A, everything there is to know about nature, and B, that we know everything there is to know about the nature of God. Um, so the, the fact that nature, that miracles occur outside of nature, in my mind, doesn't disprove them. It just defines them. That's the whole point of miracles is that they do occur outside of nature. They're designed to appeal to our intelligence. They're, they're, they, in essence, force us to reconcile what we've seen or what we've heard that seems um, outside of the bounds of our mind's um, ability to get our head around what can happen. It forces us to reconcile that with what we know. And that's the whole point of a miracle is to appeal, actually to appeal of our, uh, to our intelligence. I think about the creator, the creator of this universe sitting up in heaven watching us as it took us millions of years to figure out the earth is round and not flat. It took us a really, really long time to figure out Pluto is not actually a planet. It's just a little something. So I don't even know what they call it now. But so the point of all of this is um, we don't know so much. We think we're pretty smart. Dan came back from the Natural History Museum with the kids yesterday, all kind of freaked out. He gets freaked out about space and stars and stuff like that. And so our dinner conversation was last night, do you know there are 300 billion galaxies in the universe. And I'd like to know how they figured that out, but Whoopi Goldberg didn't say that in the, in the show. So 300 billion galaxies. In each of those galaxies, there's 200 million stars. Is that right? 200 billion stars. Okay, so in each of the 300 billion galaxies, there's 200 billion stars. Our sun is just one of those. One of 200 billion stars. And so the Earth is this little speck of dust flying around out in the universe. And so think about how tiny and insignificant we seem. A little tiny speck in this whole huge universe. Um, so it turns out we don't, we're very small and we don't really know much at all in the scheme of things. Okay, so do I have to believe in miracles to believe in God? Scripture is so chock full of miracles um, that our very religion and faith 
is based an inner based on an inextricably entwined with miracles. So the short answer is yes. Having a relationship with Christ requires believing in the most incredible miracles of all. So that's the short answer. But at the end of the day, what's the point in surrendering your life to a God who can't perform miracles? What is the point of that? Why would I do that when I'm pretty darn resourceful on my own? Um, Ryan so beautifully laid it out for us on Christmas Eve about how we've failed as humans to um, make it happen for ourselves. All of our science, all of our politics, all of our art, none of that, as sophisticated as we think that it is and and the strides that we've made, doesn't... um, rectify our need for salvation. We are a broken people that needs miracles. And so far, we haven't been able to do that on our own. So do we have to accept every alleged miracle that happens out there? Well, in miracles, testimonies are only evidence. So we have to rely on that. Um, but it's, it's the same with history. History is books written about things that happened a really long time ago by people that we've never met. So it's a similar, all the evidence that we have in many cases is just the testimony that's provided. It's just John saying, we've seen the glory of God. So I'm going to write this down so that thousands of years later, all of you know about it. So, um, but if careful investigation into an alleged miracle proves that it wasn't that at all in the first place, Great. There's score one for the truth. So if that potato chip was not, in fact, shaped like the Virgin Mary, that is okay. It does not negate all the other miraculous things that have paved the way for our salvation. Um, Reports of things like that don't often meet that criteria we talked about earlier, those dignified acts of God. So Mary-shaped potato chips and Jesus-shaped pancakes and things like that. Miracle? Mm, I don't know, but it, it doesn't really matter because it doesn't negate the things that are, in fact, miracles. Um, there's just simply no compromise, though, on those miracles that do form the foundation of our faith. So God chose to reveal himself to us in a supernatural way. So miracles are the key for us. He provided for us a miraculous love. And so that is how he um, depicted for us the type of relationship that can and should exist between God and man. It is miraculous. All right, so let's wrap this up. So far we have some good cocktail party discussion about miracles. Let's get Let's let rubber hit the road. I want to know how to get one of these for myself. Back to the original beginning of this, of this sermon, which was, I need a miracle. So there are four ways that I can describe to make a way for a miracle in your own life. One is check your faith. The next one is expect it. And the third is pray for it. And the fourth is get ready for it, prepare for it. So let's explore those for a second. So the first one is check your faith. To recognize America, we have to be willing to suspend belief. C.S. Lewis talks about a friend of his, a woman he knows that had seen a ghost, but didn't, because she didn't believe in ghosts, um, chalked it up to some sort of hallucination. When in fact, he's convinced 
she saw a ghost, but just because she doesn't believe in ghosts in her mind, she never saw a ghost. So the first step logically to having a miracle occur in your life and recognizing that that's what it is, is being willing to see it. So check your faith. Um, without, we all doubt, um, but without doubt, there would be no such thing as faith. So doubt's great, but faith has to vanquish doubt, has to win out over doubt 100% of the time in our faith. So faith has to be the victor always in order for miracles to happen in your life. So check your faith. And Matthew 17 describes an incident where a man brings his son to Jesus and his son is possessed by demons. And the man says, I, I took him already to your disciples and they couldn't cast out the demons. Please, can you help me? And Jesus immediately just speaks the demon right out of this child. And the disciples are watching this and they said, why, why weren't we able to do the same thing? And here's what Jesus says to them. He says, truly, I tell you, if you had faith as small as a mustard seed, you can move a mountain. You can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. So I've never moved a mountain, but it makes me wonder then how small is my faith if I can't move mountains and if all it takes to move a mountain is faith the size of a mustard seed. I have a lot of work to do on examining my own faith and and how strong that is. The second step there in miracles is to expect it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego pretty much laid down the gauntlet for God and said, we're we're not going to worship your God and our God can, will deliver us from this fire. So they laid down the gauntlet and God responded. They expected the miracle. The third thing is to pray for a miracle. Anytime um, in scripture that God has inter- that God intervened was um, in response to a direct appeal to him, either in person or in prayer. So the guy with the, the son um, who was possessed or the terrified disciples on the boat, they appealed directly to Jesus for that miracle. Um, or through prayer in cases where Jesus was not, in fact, walking amongst them. God tells us in Scripture and has proven over and over again, he responds to prayer 100% of the time. He promises that, that he responds 100% of the time. And the way that he does that is through his grace moving in our hearts and in special circumstances by performing a miracle. So if we don't ask for it, we're not going to get it. And the last thing um, in making a way for a miracle in your own life is to prepare for it. Miracles come out. They arise out of a personal relationship with God. That's the starting point. So even non-believers, when they're in dire straits, when their spouse is at death's door, when their child is missing, when when things couldn't get any worse, that is when people stop and when they've, they turn to the very God that they've rejected all of these years because finally they have realized that life is out of their hands. And so people turn in those cases um, to God for a miracle. But the good news is you don't have to wait for that moment. Your appeal to God, your relationship to God does not have to come out of desperation or shame or anything else. He has offered this miraculous gift to you. He's laid it before you and it's there for the taking. It can start right now, right here today. He tells us in Revelation, and this verse is on the back of your program, 
I stand at the door and knock. If any man opens that door, I'll come in and be with him and him with me. It's that simple. He's waiting. He's waiting to come in miraculously into our lives and be with us and us with him. So will the laws of nature be bent in your lifetime? Will you survive a devastating accident or a natural disaster? Or will you beat back a life-threatening illness? I don't know. And I certainly can't uh, promise that. I pray for that for you in, in every situation where I know about it. But what I can promise you with 100% conviction and authority is that the same God who can do all of these miracles that we've talked about today and many, many more, he can change your life. 100% conviction about that. He can come into your life today and change it for eternity. And that is miraculous. Um, so if we can help you in that process, if, if this at all has been um, intriguing to you, if you need a miracle in your life, if you already have a relationship with God and you need a miracle in your life, or you just want to know more about how to take those steps to make a way for a miracle, write miracle on your card and drop it in on your uh, welcome card and drop it in the box and we'll follow up with you this week. So thank you. That's um, that's God's word today. We're going to take a moment now and participate in communion together. So what we'll do is, is Eric going to, yeah, okay. So the band's going to come and play. And in a moment, when you feel led, you can come up um, to the sides of the stage here and take the elements together. Please don't feel pressured to participate in this if you are not um, already a believer and you're not comfortable with this, but this is something that we do as a community to um, observe our faith. Thanks.